Good morning, Vox. It's good to be with you this morning. This Sunday in the life of the church, we are entering the second week of Advent. This word from Latin, which means something is about to happen. It's the root of the word adventure. Advent. Prepare yourselves. A change is coming. On this week, we light the purple candle that reminds us of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. Nine months pregnant, likely a teenage couple impoverished, forced to travel at the most inconvenient time. We are invited to imagine what this young couple may have been feeling. Prepare yourselves. A change is coming. Thinking about that reminds me of when I was pregnant with Grace. Her brother came late, two weeks late. So by the time he came, I was prepared. I had all the baby clothes and the bassinet and the car seat. So four years later, when I went into early labor with Gracie, my brain couldn't process what was happening. We were at the hospital and they said, she's coming tonight. And I said, no, she's not. <laughs> I'm not prepared. And they were like, well, she's coming. And the story of Advent is a story of God coming to us in a body like ours, which we were not prepared for, and radically changing our perception of how God relates to us. Throughout human history, we were prepared for God to come with violence. But throughout the scriptures, we encounter these stories of God doing the opposite, comforting us, soothing us. That's the pattern. That's what Job and Abraham and Esther and David and Isaiah understood about how God relates to us. That's why their stories are written down and so, so carefully preserved. Something surprising was happening in their bodies through their relationship with God. And I want to propose, we call that embodied experience, trust. It's what the second candle of Advent reminds us of, the trust that Mary and Joseph may have been feeling that night, trusting that God is coming not with violence, but to soothe and comfort their stress. We may think of trust as a rational choice, but it's more accurate to think of it as a relational phenomenon. Trust is an automatic bodily response to a relationship with a trustworthy person. Our bodies are flooded with these delicious, warm, pleasant feelings of being safe enough to receive comfort and soothing from them. And throughout human history, over and over, when we misperceive God as violent, God comforts and soothes us over and over. Until the first century, so that's where we're picking up in the story today, where God comes to us now in a human body and changes our perception once and for all of how God relates to us. So our text opens with this sort of dramatic line. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. This reminds me of a scene from The Lord of the Rings. So I watch the trilogy every winter. It's this wonderful New Year's ritual that I have. And do you remember in The Two Towers when Gimli is saying this. <laughs> he says, it's true you don't see many dwarf women? <laughs> and in fact, they are so alike in voice and appearance, they are often mistaken for dwarf men, which gives rise to the belief 
that dwarfs simply spring up out of holes in the ground. <laughs> Which is, of course, ridiculous. That's what he says. That's what this reminds me of. <laughs> in those days, John just appeared in the wilderness, springing up in Judea. But <laughs> John's appearance was not as mysterious as that makes it sound. <laughs> so he was Jesus's cousin. So John had known Jesus all his life. And growing up knowing who Jesus was, God with us, Emmanuel, uh, that helps us understand some of what John's saying here. Repent. Repent. So um, a little bit about this word repent. You may have heard this word means like to turn around or to change your mind. That makes it sound, again, like a rational choice. And it's really, in Greek, the word is more of a relational phenomenon, metanoia. It's from the Greek word noieo, which means to perceive or understand. And then this word meta, which means after having been with someone. It's the same word in this verse. They shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God meta, God with us. So repent. After having been with Jesus, God in a body, and experiencing how God relates to us, notice how that changes your perception of who God is. So I want to invite you to just think about a time that you maybe have changed your perception or deepened your understanding of someone after having been with them. So while you're thinking about that, I'll let you know, Claire Kinder comes to mind for me. So when you first meet Claire, you recognize right away she's just really genuine and humble, maybe a little bit on the quiet side. She loves to bake. Then you go on the Vox retreat. <laughs> and her husband, Brandon, comes up to the open mic and reads this thing that Claire just wrote like it was nothing, but it was not nothing. It was <laughs> the most meditative meditation of inspirational inspiration. <laughs> it was this golden, hilarious magic from Claire's brain to the page to Brandon's delivery that made us laugh so hard we couldn't speak. And so after having been with Claire in that way, you may have thought, oh my goodness, like she is even more incredible than you originally may have perceived. And friends, that is true for each and every one of you. There is something we could learn after having been with you that would deepen our understanding of how incredible and unrepeatable each of you is. And we will learn something about who God is from having been with you. And what John learned about God after having been with Jesus, well, it drove John into the wilderness, <laughs> just begging people, come, change your perception. God is so much safer to come near than you originally perceived. Repent. So this Advent, how might we practice repenting of our misperceptions by allowing our bodies to experience God coming close and comforting, soothing us? You might choose to spend some intentional time in prayer or maybe in nature or sitting with the stories of Jesus and 
just allow that relational phenomenon to restore your trust, to change your understanding of how God relates to us, particularly when you find yourself in the wilderness. Because our text goes on to say this, this is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I mentioned I watched the Tolkien trilogy every winter religiously, and I mean religiously, like as if the liturgical calendar went Lent, Easter, Pentecost, Ordinary Time, Advent, Christmas, The Lord of the Rings. And then we like started all over again. (laughs) And so do you remember when Frodo and Sam are just wandering through the wilderness and they're just isolated by geography and their grief and failure? And so I'll invite you to think about a time that you may have felt something similar. And while you're thinking, I'll share with you a moment that comes to mind for me. So joyfully, I'm not there today. But last winter, I was navigating just a wilderness of grief and reeling from losses that weren't peripheral to my life. They were central. They were foundational. And so on the outside, I looked normal, but on the inside, I was just lost in a bog of pain. And do you remember when Sam says, there are dead things in the water? And then Gollum says, all dead, all rotten, elves and men and orcs, a great battle long ago, the dead marshes. Yes, yes, that is the name. Come this way and don't follow the lights. And then Frodo looks down at the body of a dead elf and he falls face forward into the marsh and these horrid looking ghosts are reaching for him and Gollum pulls him out of the water and says, don't follow the lights. (laughs) When we're in the wilderness, it can be terrifying and disorienting and we can be tempted to go follow these little flickering lights of false hope and just wandering in circles, driving ourselves mad, inclining ourselves toward death. Or we can get just really still, really quiet, really calm, and just listen. Listen to the silence. Listen to our bodies. Listen for the voice of God on the inside. One afternoon during those terribly long months of grief, I was having lunch with a friend and I told her, my body is just craving like going out alone in the wilderness. And so she was like, okay, I have a tent you can borrow. She started listing off camping supplies. And I was like, the thing I'm supposed to do is something different from that. I had the idea that I needed to just walk out alone into the wilderness with nothing, like no phone, no supplies, because that's how I felt on the inside, like unsupplied, unsheltered, no fire, no tea, no comfort, just nothing. And I I don't know, I just had the idea that if I could somehow make my outsides match what was happening on the inside, that 
maybe I could apply to my inside, whatever I ended up figuring out would help me survive my outsides and somehow that would bring some congruence. Or I just wouldn't survive either one and that would be its own kind of congruence. That's kind of the headspace that I was in. But I wasn't trying to be reckless, so I consulted friends and I got their support and I did three solo wilderness overnights last winter. And the last one was on New Year's Eve. I walked into Pernalis Falls, deep, deep into the primitive area with nothing. Just no supplies, no gear. I had a water bottle and a light because I promised my friends I would have those things. And I found this a flat spot and I sat down under some trees and I just waited for the sun to go down. Spending a night alone in the forest may be normal for you all. It's not for me. <laughs> but I know I was working out something about trust, about embodiment, about congruence. I wanted as little as possible between my outsides and my insides, between nature and me, between God and me. And there was very little. <laughs> the night got very dark and very cold. Uh, the bugs were really intense. Uh, it started raining at some point. I started crying. There were animals rustling around. I felt scared. And I just waited and waited and waited and waited for the sun to come up. We talked some at the Vox retreat about how time is a factor in whether stress feels tolerable or intolerable to us. There's something about being in pain and not knowing how much longer, like how long until relief comes. Is it five minutes or five hours or forever? But the sun did come up. Every time the sun came up. And feeling that warmth and those rays on my arms and face were glorious, just glorious. And here's the thing. I didn't need to wander around to find the sun. Like if I'd gotten up in the middle of the night and walked around the forest, I would have just gotten lost and it would not have made time pass any faster and the sun wouldn't have come up any quicker. Because when we're in the wilderness, the thing is God comes to us, not the other way around. So prepare a way, prepare a way, a way for God to come to you because it's possible that something is about to happen. A change is coming. Gerald May says it this way, wilderness is not just a place, it's also a state of being. If happiness means being happy and sadness means being sad, then wilderness means being wilder. <laughs> if you look it up, you'll find that the primary meaning of wild is natural. And in turn, natural comes from the Latin nasi, meaning to be born. So words like natal and nativity and native come from this root, all referring to birth. Wilderness then is not only the, na the nature you find outdoors, it can also refer to your own true nature, the you that is closest to your birth, this inner wilderness that is the untamed truth of who you really are. So friends, if you find yourself in a wilderness of 
loss or failure or grief this Advent. Perhaps consider how to prepare a way for God to come to you on the inside and know that your wilderness could be a womb. God may be rebirthing you into a fuller, wilder, more untamed embodiment of who you really are. And that, in turn, will allow us to learn something about God after having been with you. Okay, our text wraps up with this. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then the people of Jerusalem and Judea were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So usually we're trying to escape the wilderness, right? So why do we imagine people were going out into the wilderness to speak with John? Well, John had known Jesus his entire life. And so we can imagine that that changed John into this wilder, more untamed version of who he really was. So John just stayed out there in the wilderness, a voice crying, prepare yourselves. Comfort is coming. Soothing is coming. Confess your sins. So you've heard that this Greek word for sin, hamartia, is, it's like an archery term. It means missing the mark. Aristotle used this term to describe Greek tragedies where the protagonist falls into misery, but not because of bad moral character. It's because of some pretty intelligible mistake that the audience can perceive right away, but the protagonist is unaware of it. And that's what makes Greek tragedy so compelling. It's about missing the mark of goodness, but not because we're not aiming for it. It's because our vision's blurry, and we just can't see clearly what's right in front of us. So here's how one Greek scholar puts it. A tragic hamartia is not the outcome of a defective or vicious disposition of character. In order to miss the mark, they must know or at least have a sense of what is the good that they are ultimately striving for in order that their action expresses a vision of the human good. Their action expresses a vision of the human good. So what Greek authors are conveying with this word sin, martia, is that as human beings, we're prone to blurry vision. We're prone to misperception. And so we need help to see reality more clearly. When I was eight years old, someone checked my eyes, I guess, at school and was like, wow, you really need glasses. And so I remember the day that I came home with glasses for the first time, and there was this painting that had been hanging on my grandmother's wall. And I'd always just thought it was this abstract colors on a canvas. And then suddenly I could see it was a tree with distinct branches and leaves. And I like went around telling everyone, I was like, this is a tree. <laughs> they were like, we know. <laughs> but I thought it was so funny that I hadn't been able to perceive it before. I was practicing confession. They were baptized by John in the river, confessing their sins, the ways in which their vision had been blurry before. So friends, what misperceptions about God, about love, about ourselves do we need to confess?
While you're thinking about that, um, <clears throat> I'll share with you that the past couple of years, I've been spending a lot, a lot of time with the stories of Jesus. And it has revealed to me some of my more serious misperceptions. For a long time, I thought God wanted me to endure pain without speaking about it. I thought God wanted my silence. For a long time, I thought that love meant not expressing my true feelings if it was going to make someone uncomfortable. For a long time, I thought I should be able to tolerate even oppression and occasional abuse because I misperceived that that's what love does. And I'm confessing those sins, and I'm asking you to forgive me for the impact that that may have had on you here at Vox over the years. If you may have at times felt less free to express yourself because I wasn't risking expressing myself. I was maintaining the status quo. I'm repenting now, and God is rebirthing in me a more untamed embodiment of who I really am. And it was spending time reflecting on Jesus as God that really changed my misperceptions. Jesus was the fullest, wildest, most untamed embodiment of God. And he expressed a full range of human emotion. He said all the things. He risked making people uncomfortable because that's what love sometimes does, like Christopher spoke about last week, that love sometimes lovingly disrupts the status quo when it's oppressive and when that's necessary. Jesus' love never missed the mark. God in a body, born to a teenage couple, impoverished, forced to travel at the most inconvenient time. God coming close, not with violence, but to comfort and soothe. So friends, today, as we wrap up here in the second week in Advent, let us confess our sins to God and to one another. And let's pray for each other that we and our community and our planet may be healed of our misperceptions about God, about love, and about ourselves. For something is about to happen, perhaps in the wilderness of your loss or failure or grief. So prepare yourself. God is with us, and God is coming. Please pray with me. God in a body, send your spirit to be with us in our preparations this Christmas. We are busy, and yet we seek quiet spaces to hear your voice. We are anxious, and yet we look forward to your coming among us. We are blessed, and yet we long for our joy to be complete. Our hearts are heavy, and yet we seek the joy of your presence. We are your people, walking in darkness, and yet seeking the light. In the name of God, of both darkness and light, the love of Christ, and the comfort of the Spirit. Amen.